Aloha. You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. Really excited to have a special guest with us. Uh, he is Dr. Carl Stauffer, Associate Professor of Justice Studies at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisburg, Virginia. Dr. Stauffer also serves as co-director of the Zare Institute of Restorative Justice and academic director of the Co Scholars Program in Switzerland, and has a really awesome series of publications focusing on narratology, transitional justice, post-war reconstruction and reconciliation. His research concentrates on the critique of transitional justice from a restorative frame and the application of hybrid parallel indigenous justice systems. And you're married to Dr. Carolyn Stauffer as well, who teaches sociology at EMU. My wife is also a professor in social work, so that's a that's a cool thing as well. Then you've lived in Vietnam and South Africa and the Philippines, spent much, much of your life abroad. So tell us a little bit about how you got into peace and conflict studies and what ultimately kind of led you to this path here at Eastern Mennonite University and running the Zare Center. Sure. Thanks, Chad. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here and to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me on. I think if I'm going to answer that question, I probably have to start from childhood. And I'm, I'm not going to go through all my life. Don't worry. But um, I grew up in Vietnam, uh, the third and last born of church workers in Vietnam during the war, during the U.S. war in Vietnam. And so I experienced war as a child, not, not always directly, but it did come very close to our home. We had to flee our home in 1968. For those of you who are history buffs, that was the 1968 Tet Offensive, uh, where the North Vietnamese were able to penetrate the city and of Saigon, where we lived, and come, uh, come very close to our home. So I, I have that, that imprint, and it's deep, and it's, and it's um, been a, a very important sort of guiding star for what I've done and why I've done it. I often tell my students, don't underestimate where you've grown up and how you've grown up that may have something to do with the trajectory of your, of your work. But I, one story I'll, I'll just tell, I mean, there were many impressions and I, and I have to give my parents a great deal of credit for um, not feeling like there was, we were in a moment of terror for whatever reason, I'm sure they were feeling some terror, but they never uh, passed that to us as children in the same way, even though, we knew something very unusual was happening. We were crawling under the bed and praying and singing. And my dad's listening to the radio, trying to figure out where the curfew is and where the fighting is. We know the fighting's close because we can hear it all around. Um, so you have those memories, those trauma memories of war. Um, there was a helicopter above our house emptying out um, machine gun fire on a gas station, a petrol station with about a half mile from our home. And that's what we later found out. The Viet Cong had actually taken over that station. But, my point being, later on in my life, I realized the significance of that experience. And that was my father took a number of photos um, right after the Tet Offensive. And he used those photos when he came back to the United States to talk about what was happening in Vietnam whenever we visit. And a number of those photos have stayed sort of pierced in my mind. And, and one of those is of a North Vietnamese soldier, a dead soldier. So he's in the all black and his feet are tied together and he's being drugged through the street on the back of an army behind an army Jeep in Saigon now Ho Chi Minh city. And people are watching and, and some are jeering and some are cheering. And, but that scene, I never understood the, the way it made me feel until I started to get into peace, peace building work and, and started to look at conflict analysis and begin to understand that that was so uh, traumatizing for me, or it, it left me with such a horrific feeling because it was a, sort of the epitome of, of our loss of humanity in the midst of war. It was as if we were celebrating the victory um, in that moment on, by desecrating the dead, the bodies of the dead enemy. And, and later on, I was able to reflect on that and think about how desperate a situation that is when we as humanity have to celebrate our victory on the decimation of the, the dead enemy. So that led me on a trajectory to uh, what I believe is, is the work I'm doing now. And I entered the field in 1991. I had studied social work. I was also an ordained minister. 
And um, I was part-time as a minister and then part-time as the first executive director of the Capital Area Victim Offender Reconciliation Program, which was a program bringing um, victims and offenders in crime together to mediate a, re a resolution. Uh, this was in the criminal justice system in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of our state. And um, I was there for three years before my wife and I decided to take our family and move to South Africa. 1994, we arrived in South Africa. January, that would have been four months before the all-inclusive free elections where Nelson Mandela was elected as president. Well, it's a big time to be there. Yeah, Very historic, historic time, time to be there. Yeah. We signed up for three years with a, a faith-based um, international development organization, thinking it was going to be our three years and it'd be great. Put that on the CV. And um, we fell in love with the place. So much so that we ended up staying 16 years. Our um, children were raised there and came back in 2009 and started teaching at uh, CJP, which was my alma mater, the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding uh, here at Eastern Midnight University. I had studied my master's here myself uh, at a distance and um, had worked under Howard Zare. And so it was sort of a coming home moment. There's so much to you know unpack there. Uh, about your life and how it impacts. I'm, I'm curious too, because Eastern Mennonite University, the Mennonites have this long tradition of, of peace building being a faith vocation. Uh, and it sounds like that was something that, that was important in your family uh, growing up and, and has been important to you. And uh, I think especially for our listeners that might not be familiar with that tradition or sort of understand that background, that would be really helpful to to hear a little bit more about this. I, I also work at a religious university where we talk a lot about peace building and, and faith uh, and, and it being a faith vocation, uh, if you will. And I'm just curious about from your tradition, how that's impacted or influenced you. Sure. Absolutely. Um, just a bit about the Mennonites for those who don't know who the Mennonites might be. Um, the Mennonites are a small um, Protestant church that um, is not often heard about because of our size, but have always been deeply dedicated uh, since the beginning to nonviolence, a theology of nonviolence and a theology of service and community and um, working with those who are in need, the poor and those who are in need as our form of witness, as our form of doing our faith putting our faith in action. And so that would have been what took my parents to Vietnam in a, in a time when it was hard to differentiate between uh, American U.S. Uh, military and, and U.S. church workers. And so that was a, you know, a moral challenge for them all the time. Could they be a different face of the United States to the people of Vietnam? And that was their goal. And that's why they ended up staying, even though there was lots of dilemmas in that process. So that would have been the same uh, with my wife and I as we left to go for with Mennonite Central Committee to South Africa. Um, it's part of, as we would say, the gospel is, is, is living that out um, in, a, in, a, in a way that is tangible and, and we can feel and, 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 and uh, touch and, and taste and understand. And so uh, in many ways, um, I tell my students, I wouldn't be in this field, I don't think, if it wasn't for my faith, and, and I'm not trying to be funny there, I'm saying my faith has um, allowed me to think very um, deeply about why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. It has informed that, and it allows me a view that gives me hope and a sense that there's something else going on um, beyond what I can see. I, I, you know, and so that allows me to stay in this for the long haul. In other words, as I went into war zones, and I did many of them in different parts of Africa in my tenure there, um, I always went with this prayer, God, help me to see where you are in this situation, and then align to that. I never assumed that God wasn't there in the most remotest and difficult, painful situation. I assumed God was there and working through people. And I needed to align to those people if I could find them and if I could be sensitive enough. And so borrowing from the journalists who say there's always a story behind the story, my faith helps me think about that. And so if I was only dependent on what I could see around me as evidence of peace, 
I probably would have given up or burned out by now or said, this is enough. Uh, I can make some more money and do something else that would be a lot funner <laughs> than this. And so to stay in for the long haul um, for a lifetime for me has been about this idea that there's something bigger than myself at work here in the spirit realm. And um, my job is to keep finding that and aligning to it and holding on to the hope that that gives in the work. There's something really, a lot of what you said deeply resonates with me that we come from different faith traditions uh, and, and certainly mine, uh, one that doesn't have a, the same track record of working in the peace and conflict space as yours. This idea that God is working through people you know, often when you hear people talk about conflict, it's it's the absence. Of, you know, where is God? How come God isn't here in the in the midst of of war and suffering and poverty and genocide? Where is God? And and this idea that um, instead of asking for God to intervene as some sort of divine being, that that God intervenes through through people, and uh, it's it's us sort of following that ethic. And that that spirit uh, that uh, does good in the world, as opposed to this sort of sit back and and thoughts and prayers um, going out and and hoping that God will do something, um, you know, for them. One of the joys of being able to look back after over decades of this work is that I have names and faces of dear people and leaders of communities and leaders of of programs and organizations and folks doing incredibly hopeful work, bringing light into incredibly dark situations. And I know they're still doing the work. They've rolled up their sleeves, they're still doing the work. And so it's like there's sort of lights all over the globe of where I've been to say, hey, I know these are folks I know who are bringing life in this peace, peace building world amidst situations of sometimes very severe and painful violence. And that, that to me, says, okay, I can, I can get up the next day and keep working. If they can, I can too. And that, that's, that's un- unfortunately part of the untold story, right? In the midst of, of all of this human suffering that we see in the world, uh, whether it, it's a global pandemic, it's a health crisis, it's an economic crisis, there are always people on the ground working to alleviate that suffering. Yeah. There's always people that are willing to put themselves in, in harm's way, right. in danger's way, to suffer alongside um, people that are suffering, they willingly choose to be there uh, in those spaces to to make a difference. And if there's anything that gives me hope or helps me stay in the game, it's sort of recognizing um, people like you and so many people around the world that are that have have looked at their life and have used whatever sort of privilege or blessings or um, whatever they have to give back um, to communities that need that that work and. Uh, you know, Mennonites have had another deep impact on me in that when I was in grad school, I was introduced to John Paul Lederach's mm-hmm. work. And uh, his book for USIP, Building Peace, yes. which was uh, where he sets out a reconciliation model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he pulls it right out of the Psalms. Right. And uh, truth, mercy, justice, and peace pulls it right out of the Psalms. And and I remember reading that as a as a graduate student. And a light coming on, not not just in my mind, but in my heart, about the difference between conflict management and and conflict resolution, and then those deeper areas of conflict transformation and ultimate reconciliation and restorative justice. And you know, it was interesting. I was at George Mason at the time in their uh, school for conflict analysis and resolution, and sometimes professors would talk about you know, this and say, you know, look, most of the time, everything's very transactional. The conflict resolution we're doing, we're just managing people that are going to be in conflict and we're just trying to create space to keep them from escalating it. Or then occasionally we can we can go a little bit deeper than people's uh, positions and into their interest and we can negotiate there and come up with some sort of resolution. And then they would pause and say, but there's these sometimes these moments where something else happens in the conflict and people that were enemies turn towards each other. And there's this, this embrace and there's this sustainable peace, but often it was like, man, that's amazing when that happens. And, you know, it, it's almost like some sort of external sort of magic force makes it happen. And I think Lederach was the first person to sort of turn me on 
to this idea that, no, there's a process here. And, and there are things that we can do to create space for reconciliation. We can't force reconciliation on anyone, but there are things that we can do to create space for that to That's happen. That's right. That's right. No, very well put. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I think, I think, you know, when I come to reconciliation, having worked with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and um, working on racial justice issues, both in Richmond from, uh, from 88 to 94 to now um, in the last decade or so. Yeah, you're exactly right. Reconciliation is, is possible and it's, and it's doable, but it's, it's not easy, it's messy. And I think we need to back up a little bit and say, um, the word has been hijacked in many places. Uh, it's been taken over to mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it means political power sharing or learning how to tolerate and live together or um, healing between people. Or um, So there's so many different ways in which we've talked about or economic or political well-being. So I think we need to be clear when we're talking about that deeper level of reconciliation that happens uh, that we're talking about here that it's a, it's a process of all of those things, potentially. And it's not something that um, we rush into. It's not formulaic. It's something we strive for. It's something we try to embody. And both in restorative justice and reconciliation work, and I think restorative justice has a number of more clear set sort of frameworks and skill sets that we can possibly use to set up the platform or the space, the container for forgiveness or reconciliation to go forward. And those are not the same thing either, but, and, and neither of those can be forced, but both of those can be powerfully um, a, a kind of healing and, and a kind of justice for people who, who decide to walk into those moments. I think that's a great time, great moment to sort of segue into, into talking about this on the on the global stage uh, today. We, we look at some of the conflicts. We use words like intractable. We throw it around. People people get frustrated. I've um, like so many others have been uh, engaged in the in the racial protest around Black Lives Matter in the United States uh, as as well in other places around the world and. And, you know, part of it is, okay, there's legislative options. Um, you know, you can think about what the police should or shouldn't be doing. You can think about uh, criminal justice reform. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of policy things. But at that deeper level, how do we create space for restorative justice and then, you know, ultimately reconciliation? And and it's, it's such a big thing, right, that 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 it's hard to get your hands around and it can, it can feel impossible for so many people, especially when feelings are so inflamed as they, as they are right now. And so I, I thought maybe we would start by going back to your work in South Africa. You've done a, a lot of living there. You've done research there. You've done work there on the ground. And, you know, South Africa coming out of apartheid made a real attempt uh, a historic attempt at at trying to address some of these issues with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It probably is the most famous uh, political reconciliation process that that happened. And as you've pointed out in your writing, it's been lauded as this historic success that it probably wasn't. Um, at times, it's been demonized as as being even nefarious and, and problematic in ways that maybe aren't necessarily fair either um, because the process is so messy. But could you talk a little bit about, from your perspective and your research, what South Africa did as well as what, what, was, what worked and what didn't work? Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's the Truth Commission in South Africa uh, came at a time where the entire globe was was watching, and so it, it took on a it took on quite a quite a significant profile uh, in its time. But I would like to back up a little bit and just say I think we need to think first of all talk about the origins. It came out of a political compromise, and I, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubbles, but it did. It came out of a political compromise in the sense that. Um, as I understand it, during the negotiations and peace talks, and I've heard from folks who say they were directly there, 
the the white apartheid folk from the Nationalist Party, in fact, cornered the ANC, if you will, symbolically or otherwise, and said, either give us blanket amnesty or we will take this country into civil war. And they had the military might to do that. And so the the way it was proposed, the way it was told, that story was told to me was, was the, the African uh, National Congress folk were saying we felt really quite stuck and we cared enough about the, the country to say, okay, we need to do something uh, around amnesty, but we're just not able to swallow blanket amnesty. And for those who don't understand that transitional justice terms, blanket amnesty is as if nothing happened, they wouldn't have to go to tell the truth, they wouldn't have to be uh, go to trial, uh, there would be no sanction of sorts. And we know that that's a shortcut to reconciliation, not an effective way of solving this problem at all. And um, it's just like, forget about the past. Yeah. Let's let's just move forward. Forget about the as past. As if it never happened. And yeah. and and, yes. and we know that didn't work in, in South America uh, with military regimes who gave themselves blanket amnesty and then stayed in power. And so um, South Africa was acutely aware of that. And, and so they looked for another option and they really pioneered this idea of conditional amnesty. And, and that was that amnesty, mercy was possible, but only on certain conditions. And for them, it was clear you had to show that you were part of a legitimate uh, political party at the time. Um, you had to, and legitimate mean on all sides. It doesn't mean that it wasn't banned but legitimately struggling for freedom or whatever. You had to show that your action was ordered or, or part of a plan and it was proportional to your goals. So if your goals were to bring you know, the apartheid regime down and you were bombing creches or, or preschools with small children and there could be some question as to what is the political motive here. And so that kind of thing had to be investigated and looked into and they were supposed to confess the truth of everything that they had done that fell within the gross human rights violations categories that the Truth Commission was working with. And this investigative unit would look into it. And so what many people don't know is almost more than half of the amnesty applications that came through South African TRC were not granted. So it wasn't a free, it wasn't a free, you know, get, get out of jail free card for anyone. Now, unfortunately, the criminal justice system as, as overloaded as it is in South Africa, has been unable to pick up these cases of folks who didn't get amnesty. And so many of them are walking free and this becomes part of the angst around the process. But let me back up. Or they fled the country. Or they fled the country. Or, or, yeah. or there was apartheid leaders that didn't even apply for amnesty in the first place. Exactly, exactly. So, but that's one part of it. And let me, let me go back up a little bit. What it did do incredibly well uh, was, was establish another narrative of history. And, and, and that narrative is, is really important because um, apartheid had its own narrative of history and, and, and the African, 80% of the country that was African had their narrative. And these narratives were, were completely at odds. And finally, um, the Truth Commission began to say, no, we're gonna have to talk about us, not us and them. We're gonna have to talk about we, and, and this is what the we looks like with all the good, bad, and the ugly. And no one can really deny apartheid happened anymore. Okay, there's extremist groups, just like some in Germany who deny the Holocaust, but those are, are rare and, 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 and few and far between. You don't have to like what the Truth Commission did, but it, it really did work at re-narrating and also literally rewriting the historical narrative that is being taught in schools. And so that all the voices of the diversity uh, that have experienced the pain of apartheid are now uh, in that process. The second thing- And if I, could just yeah. in, if I could just interject one thing there, and just for people that maybe hadn't followed this closely, before then, all of these atrocities and human rights violations that were happening, the, the government just pretended that they didn't. Absolutely. Uh, they, ga they essentially gaslighted Yes. The victims of people. My husband disappeared in the night. We have no idea what happened right. to your husband. Uh, we didn't send anybody over. We we don't know what what yeah. happened. You must you must be crazy. Maybe your husband left you. Yeah. Uh, you know where and, and and so for many black South Africans, the one thing this does establish is that their narrative 
that they had been sharing that had been delegitimized by the government right. and others was finally brought to light as being legitimate. And I think that that was a victory for many South Africans uh, who for years had been yes. essentially told what they say is happening is not actually happening. That's right. And completely silenced. Many of them had not spoken to anyone except their immediate family about the trauma they had been through. And that was going to be my second point. The voice, the hearings, the victims' hearings were, were really important. Um, even though not everyone obviously got to speak, they had to pick and choose cases and there was politics in that. But the ones who, who were able to speak and tell this story for the first time and have it legitimated, you know, have the nation say what happened to you was wrong. It never should have happened. For the first time, they're hearing this. And that has a restorative uh, element to it. I would say then the other thing that was important is there was, um, you know, so that opened that discussion up. And then some accountability to um, the folks who were, who were, you know, the perpetrators or the offenders who are responsible for this, including some social sanctioning. The, uh, the other thing that the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission refused to do is put the trials and the hearings behind um, closed doors and they opened it up. So all of these were in camera and the nation was watching this on a weekly basis through a program on Sunday evenings called the Special Report for the TRC. And so you had that, that opening up, that truth telling happening at many different levels with different mediums. And, um, and so when the faces were shown, of the culprits, many of them lost their jobs and, and have not been able and will not be able to get back into public service because they've lost the trust of the public service. And I think that's an appropriate sanction uh, for that kind of, those kinds of crimes. And so you have these benefits there, for sure. There was some monetary reparation and there certainly has been some really, really helpful memorialization through museums um, and memorials and changing names of provinces and, and roads and dams and, and all of this, which is important in the process of transition, were there. And for that, um, I think there was a lot of progress. But at the same time- And, about and, and but, there's a but, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, I want to point out, is always going to be the case in this sort of work. It's, mm. it's very hard to get a perfect process. Absolutely. Especially at, especially at the level that we're talking yeah. about here. And- I think before we get into the butts for people, it's also important to know that had this process not happened at all in South Africa, I think the outcome would have been very different in, in, in a negative way. Absolutely. Um, I'm convinced of it. But there are a lot of things, yeah, but there are a lot of things we can learn from sure. the mistakes that were made as well. And, sure. and I'm really curious to hear yeah. your perspective yeah. on those. No, you're exactly right. And, and, and I say to students regularly, I said, I understand it's, it's discouraging to see the critiques and all the challenges, and then you want to throw your hands up in the air, but I want to say, what is the alternative? And the alternative is war, something we've been trying for centuries and eons, and we know where that gets us. So let's, messy as this is, we're be, you know, uh, this, this awakening of the fact that we need to deal with harms and, and move forward, that's the only way we can move forward after war and extreme or severe violence is, is, is critical that we begin to walk, wade into this mess, <laughs> into this chaos, and try to figure out how we can do it and do it better. So there's lots to learn from South Africa in that. I mean, first of all, I think um, one frustration in South Africa was it was, it was a top-down approach. It was brought from the government down and it didn't necessarily trickle down to all the local communities and i was working in local communities and so there was a lot of other creative innovative work that had to happen by ngos and religious groups and others just picking up the slack there in order to keep people together in local communities so it was a national uh, exercise but not really a local reconciliation exercise it also um, was frustrating for the victims as much as they were given a voice there was a lot of attention given to the amnesty applicants because the amnesty process was set up like a courtroom. It was taking extensive amounts of time and they extended the work of the TRC for the amnesty applicants for almost a year and a half. And they didn't extend that for the victims' hearings or the other aspects of rehabilitation and reparations. Um, and then it failed, I think, to bring some of the key um, claims of transitional justice and that is um, institutional reform. 
as much as there was some incredible institutional building happening right over that time, and I think it's important for people to understand that the Truth Commission was, in South Africa wasn't the only thing that contained violence. There was the Human Rights Commission, there was the Gender Equity Commission, there was the um, Land Claims Commission that mediated land disputes, there was the um, Commission on Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration that worked with labor disputes. All of these community policing forums, all of these were new legislation, new institutions to try to contain the violence. And without those, yes, it could have been a very different ending. We could still be in a protracted war in South Africa even now. As we know, many of these wars have lasted for decades, uh, civil wars. And um, so I think that is, those are things we need to count as benefits, but we need to learn how do we translate the transitional justice process into institutional reform so that people can feel the difference. They've heard the difference, maybe some apologies, etc. But how do they feel the difference? And that's probably one of the biggest frustrations is about 30% of the South Africans who were living in poverty and unemployment before apartheid, I mean, during apartheid are still living in that uh, same situation and are asking why. Why did we go through this? What has, what has it benefited us? And so we have to think about those material uh, institutional systems changes as part of our reconciliation agenda in the long run. So I talk to my students many times about material and symbolic, tangible and intangible as reparations. And we need to think about both of those moving hand in hand. I tell a really simple story in my book about uh, my son. And uh, when we had moved to Hawaii, he had a new bike and he was so excited because in Hawaii, he could ride, ride that bike anywhere. But he was, he was, uh, uh, pretty uncautious and he would often leave his bike unlocked up and I would tell him every night, Hey, you know, put the bike in the garage, lock it up for the night. And, uh, and one morning he wakes up and his bike's gone. And, you know, the wailing of an eight year old, uh, you know, my bike's gone, you know, life is over as, as we know it. Cause I'd also told him, Hey, if you're not locking up your bike, I'm not going to just buy you another one. And, you know, it's, you know, a lot of parents would be, I told you so, but it, it probably is much worse to have a dad who's a conflict uh, resolution professor, because I, I saw this as, as a great teaching moment, right? I, and, you know, I set him down. I said, you know, what if, what if on your way to walking to school, you see your friend riding your bike, uh, right? Or you see, you see someone in, in your class riding your bike, you know, what would you say? Well, I would come up to him. I'd say, give me my bike. And I said, what if they said to you, look, I'm really sorry. I sold, I, 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 I took your bike. I feel really, really badly about it. Will you please forgive me? What would you say? And he said, well, yeah, I'd probably forgive him. But I'd ask, where's my bike? And what if he says, no, 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 it's, this is about the, this is about moving forward, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and then every day as you walk to school, you watch him ride your bike to school. How would you feel about it? And he's like, no, I'd, I'd be really frustrated. And this sort of phrase of where's my bike came up because it's, it's fascinating to me how often this is where reconciliation hits the rocks. Um, it's, it's, look, it's very hard to tell the truth. It's very hard to open up without justification and to admit our wrongs. And it's very hard to forgive. But I often find where the rocks get hit is when I have to do something around justice that makes people whole, whether, as you point out, that symbolically or materially, or in many cases, both, that is going to make whatever was done wrong right this is where people balk. And, and I, I see it even in the context of the United States and you know, where we're talking about it, the minute anybody mentions reparations or any sort of redistribution or any sort of thing that would benefit African-Americans for a legacy of slavery and all the things that were taken from them, that's where I think public opinion starts to drop, drop off. But as you're pointing out, it's so critical. Absolutely to the process, justice is part mm -hmm. of, of the reconciliation process and not the justice that destroys, because I think a lot of times, you know, and Lederach makes this point, a lot of times justice can be revenge, yep. right? Justice is about humiliation. Justice is about punishing um, people for the wrongs that they done, if they've done, but the justice that makes a community that was broken whole. Um, and to do that requires some pain and suffering. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, um, we have had a very lopsided conversation when we talk about, well, I've apologized, you know, or we apologized, or we said, sorry, um, now leave it. Um, because there's, there's more to, the, to that, there has to be more to that discussion. And we are 
um, shortcutting justice if we're not having the whole conversation around what does this look like. And I'm actually, in the 10 years I've been back here in the United States, I've been quite amazed to watch that when I first came in 2010, reparations was laughed at almost and eyes were rolled. And now reparations is actually seriously being talked about, not in every community by any means, but in many communities and even at the governmental level in Congress. And that's a step forward. Because um, before it was like, well, that would be impossible. Where would we start? You know, blah, blah, blah. And that's coming from the folks who are in the majority um, rule or power. And one of the things that, that you pointed out in the reparations is they, they also can't be demeaning to people, right? I think that the payout that the South Af- African government gave to each victim's family was roughly U.S. equivalent, like about $3,000, yeah. $3,500. Yeah. Which is which is something. It's 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 not anything, but it. I think it was perceived by many people in South Africa as a, a almost a slap in the face, yeah. almost as another sort of re-victimization. You're saying that my loved one and all of this trauma equals thirty five hundred dollars, but you can go spend thirty billion uh, on the. Military. That's right. That's exactly right, and that's what happened. <laughs> in case folks don't know, uh, the the government at the time. And I, and I was following the RNR subcommittee, which is the Rehabilitation and Reparation Subcommittee. And they had come up with a very beautiful document. You can find it online. It was quite holistic and it was uh, to the tune of about 5 billion rand. And that may sound like a lot, but it's not compared to the overall economics, uh, the budget of, of, of the South African government. And the South African government, first of all, bulked at it from a moral perspective and said, why are we paying for the sins of the white government? But the answer is very simple. The white government doesn't exist anymore and you are now the government and you have picked up the resources of the state. And so this is your responsibility. Well, when they couldn't bulk at that, then they said, well, we don't have the money. And so for a year, there was a lot of hem hauling around and some of us in the civil society came across um, or it became clear that they had sold 30 billion, uh, I mean, had bought 30, purchased 30 billion um, Rands worth of high-tech uh, military weaponry. weaponry. I think they were Hitachi helicopters. And we said, no, this is not acceptable if, if you're going to say you don't have the money. And so that's when we had a galvanizing moment to really advocate. Um, and then their response was this once-off once payoff. And they said, that's all we can do. And as a result, you have a lot of disillusioned folk, yes, who, who feel like it was really um, a slap in the face, if you will a sort of humiliation. And there's a large, a growing number who have joined a class action suit that's, that's being taken on by a, a, a law firm in New York City over the last few years. And they're uh, suing large US corporations that stayed invested in South Africa during the entire apartheid time and never withdrew or took part in the sanctions. These are groups like Ford and Chrysler and um, KFC and so on. And uh, they're hoping to get more money out of these through a class action suit. That still doesn't allow for the reconciliation and healing that we're trying to talk about. And yet that is the, where they're finding their voice. And so we need to take seriously, why did they feel like that was the only measure where they could possibly feel like some of their dignity is being restored? I want to talk about a fourth aspect that Letterock talks about, you know, truth and mercy, which I I feel like often get the high the headlines in in reconciliation, right? This sort of process of victim and victimizer coming together and and stating the truth and apologizing. The justice one, as we talked about, gets gets more messy. Um, he also talks about peace and and he writes it in a way that I think is is really credible to discussion that we're having in the U.S. right now, which is that. The legacy of conflict often are social systems, structural systems, implied benefits uh, to people, and this fear that sort of comes in, what's going to stop this from happening again, right? Like if I go through this whole process with you, what, what assurances do I have? And how do I create a safe space for real reconciliation that this isn't going to happen again? And that part of this process is, is looking at how do we change how we relate to each other going forward. Um, how do we connect together in different ways? How do we dismantle structures of oppression 
uh, in ways that don't just allow this same sort of problem to happen again and again. We, we've all had that experience of maybe going through somewhat of a just a personal reconciliation process only to have the same offense happen again. And then we pull even further away at that point point. said, I never should have trusted them. I never should have went through that process. And, and that that also seems to be one of the challenges with South Africa is that many of the structural and social and economic systems in South Africa didn't change. And for many, especially poor South Africans, life in South Africa, maybe apartheid was gone, but life in South Africa wasn't really particularly that different for them. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the challenge. And, um, and there's been some creative calls, which I wanna give some hope for. For instance, some South African voices have been speaking about, we need multiple truth commissions. What would it be like to, you know, we, we should never think of it just once and then it's finished and it's closed after a two-year mandate or whatever. Let's think about, we need to have a, a TRC on, on, on government delivery, a TRC on land, a TRC on jobs and economics or, or whatever, wherever there's a need. And this would set up a, a structure, an infrastructure for the, for the nation or the country to be having this conversation on an ongoing basis, which is what we call participatory democracy or deliberative democracy anyway. And so it would show a commitment uh, or the political will on the part of, of, of those who govern to really have this conversation and, and um, allow people to be part of that conversation and take back some of the um, the critical issues of conflict and and development and that, that that they they can handle at that level, and so it's but it's it's hard to imagine what that looks like because we're so used to a, a very different kind of government hierarchy and bureaucracy and and the lack of response there. But I would say, yeah, you're exactly right. I think we're talking about positive peace here. Restorative justice and reconciliation are trying to move uh, the justice conversation into, uh, I would say, many of the similar goals of positive peace. When we talk about positive and negative peace, we're talking about a negative peace being the cessation of violence, maybe direct violence or shooting or whatever, ceasefire. But positive peace is how are we going to live together in a way that, um, that respects the dignity of everyone and the common good and coexist in a way that we're that we can feel like we can grow and change and become better people and a better society. Um, and, and this is a whole nother goal and then a whole nother conversation that needs to be had. Bringing it to the United States right now, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that generation after generation since the Emancipation uh, Proclamation have been crying out. It's as if parents are on the streets and then their children are on the streets a generation later and we can go on and on and on. And so this, their trust level of the ability of the white institutions to actually reform themselves or transform themselves is very, very low. And hence, it's a very, very polarized conversation at this point. And so you ask, what do we do in that? I think there's and I'm speaking now not only as individuals, but as institutions and structures, we need to educate ourselves. We need to acknowledge that structures do matter, that there can be um, harm felt from a whole structure. And that structure could have nice individuals in it. You can have a nice police officer in a police structure that might be felt as violence. You can have nice people in the military, but ask the uh, Iraqis, what the military might of the U.S. might have felt like, and you'll get a different, you know. So we have to begin to acknowledge the structural elements of this, uh, of how this gets propagated from generation to generation. And, then, and unless we can get past individualism in our culture and this, the, the holy grail of individualism, uh, and, and then the second one of meritocracy, this idea that all of us um, are sort of born into equal space, to compete. And if you make it, it's because you made good decisions. And if you don't, it's because you made bad decisions. These conversations are going to have to give way to another conversation about our collective responsibility and about the legacies and aftermaths of institutions that were built by folks who had racist, racial, um, racist 
you know, worldviews, and therefore the, the, the institutions reflect some of that. And, uh, and then we have to listen really hard and listen and listen again, and uh, then figure out what, it, what does it mean to be in allyship? What does it mean to collaborate and work together? Uh, and, and, that, and, and what sacrifices do we need to make in that process? Uh, we, I'm speaking now as someone coming from the white dominant society. And it's going to be a long, hard road of rebuilding trust and a sense of can we can change things. And of course, the big cry right now is legislation. And that's good. We should go for changes in legislation. But the heart cry is going to come next. And that's going to be the marathon. And it was, uh, you know, we've, we've done legislation in the past. And the legislation has been good in the civil rights movement. Uh, but there wasn't a reconciliation process uh, that, that happened. And we're seeing the legacy uh, of that of that now in, in in powerful ways. And it's a I, I think the other thing that, that you hear from a lot of white people, frankly, is that why should I have to do this? This was something either my ancestors did or or frankly, maybe even my ancestors didn't do it, right? My ancestors weren't slaveholders or or what have you, and this happened so long ago. And there's this tendency, you know, I write a lot about this in our book, that when we're faced with conflict, this idea of self-preservation, what's what's in it for me? How does this affect me? Uh, everything is sort of an inward mindset around me. Um, and, and we can go the other way too. We certainly know people that are so other-centered that everything's about themselves and not uh, about other people and not about themselves. But this idea in Dangerous Love is about us preservation. And that we can escape, that we live in the society uh, with people that have been hurt, that have been marginalized, that have been mistreated, and that we can't function as we are meant to function as a society, as a community, as a group of human beings together, if we don't look out for each other, if we don't take care of each other, if we don't work together to collaboratively problem solve the face. We can't just look and say, this is an African-American problem mm -hmm. or it's a white problem or, uh, and we're seeing the same discussion with COVID-19 and everything else. It's, it's, it's all of our problem and, and we have to hold it together. And that mindset seems to be one of the biggest challenges, at, at least for us as white Americans and, and, and holding on to that that you cannot look at this and say, it's not my problem. Uh, it's all of our problem. That's right. David Anderson Hooker and um, a co-author, um, Amy Potter Tchaikovsky wrote a manual in 2012 uh, from um, the CJP around transforming historical harms. And in that manual, they've developed a, a process of trying to think about historical harms and uh, that led into coming to the table, which is a movement where they're bringing together um, white and black folk in the United States who share a common thread of ancestry, possibly even as folks who had enslaved Africans and the uh, ones who had been enslaved. That's another story. But their manual talks about two things, and I think it's a good differentiation. They say there's legacies of slavery and there's aftermaths. The legacies are the the, the, the non-tangible, the sort of um, the, the worldviews, the beliefs, the, 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 um, the, the narrative that we send and the spoken and the unspoken way in which we trans, transmit our beliefs to the next generations. And it's the cultural aspects of racism. And it often has to do with how we speak too. And so a lot of people get stuck on that. Like, I'm not racist. I don't say anything racist. I've never treated anyone racist. And then they'd say, but there's the aftermath. And the aftermath is their description of the structural uh, racism that has, that has permeated our society in the systems that have been built as a result of those legacies. And that is where we all have to take responsibility. That that's where the individual, um, is no longer the point. The point is the, the system that has grown up and how is that impacting whole communities uh, across this country. And, and our indigenous people here in the United States have been asking these questions for a long time too. Well, 
I really appreciate this conversation today to see your work and to help illuminate what's happened in South Africa and how it relates to what we can potentially do in the United States. I, I remain relentlessly hopeful that we can have these hard conversations in the U.S., that we can still, even as, as negligent have, as we have been, take up the process of healing, take up the process of justice, and take up the process of positive peace in the United States and truly become what we can become yes. um, as a country. And I, I believe we can happen. And I, and I believe that maybe for the first time in my life, I, I see the will yeah. uh, to do so. I think there's certainly a growing will and that's encouraging also. If you, um, I do believe that. And I'm also encouraged by the many different conversations that are coming up now where there are very influential folks of the likes of Dr. Fania Davis, uh, the sister to Angela, who is a proponent of restorative justice, who are having discussions at the level, at a national level, around what a truth-telling process might look like here in the United States. And those are, and as I said, the reparations conversation, those are all deeply encouraging signs. Uh, we have a long road ahead, but I, I'm hopeful also. It's Dr. Carl Stauffer uh, with Eastern Mennonite University. Really appreciate your insight and your help. And... Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. You've been listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha.